God. All things were created for his glory and all things work together for his glory. His glory is the ultimate goal of all things. When Christ returns, mission will be over. Evangelism will be over. Uh, No one will ever again speak to a person outside of Jesus Christ about their need for Jesus Christ or indeed about anything else. But the glory of God will continue for all eternity. And the goal of magnifying and glorifying and speaking forth the glory of God will be the very centre of the redeemed through the whole of forever. Heaven will not be populated with every human being. It won't even be populated with the majority of human beings for, as Jesus said, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. But it will be populated with a cross-section of the whole humanity of this world. Represented every tribe and language and people and nation without favouritism. Just as sin has touched every point of this globe, so from every point of this globe God will glorify humanity and they will be there by the grace of God alone. And indeed the very worship of the new heaven and new earth will centre around the person and work of Jesus Christ. It will be the gospel that is sung and worshipped or Christ is worshipped. Revelation 5 verse 9 and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voices of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. Then circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. That is the chief end of us preaching the gospel, isn't it? That for the whole of eternity the praise of Christ will ring forth and it will never be silenced. There is no greater reason to speak to anyone about Jesus Christ than that. That is the chief end. But that doesn't mean to say there aren't other good reasons as well. That is the greatest reason. That's the ultimate reason. The others lead to that. God's glory doesn't lead to them. God's glory is the highest. That is the greatest. But I want us tonight, in a few minutes we have, just to look at two other reasons. And then God willing, in a fortnight's time, we'll start to look at some of the key elements of speaking about Jesus. The first reason I want us to look at is simply this, the saving of souls. And by that I mean the dimension of the saving of souls other than in order that Christ is glorified through it. We've already looked at that last time. My friend, if you're a Christian and you've got no concern for the souls of others then there is something terribly, terribly wrong. If you're a Christian, you're amongst the most privileged people on the face of this earth. We often recognise how privileged we are in being born in Britain materially, don't we? And, and physically. But if you're a Christian, you're amongst the most privileged people on earth. If, you're, if you can feel it right to give money to help the third world because you're more privileged in living in a land with plenty of money... If you're concerned for those who have no chance of education because you've enjoyed a good education, if you shed tears for those starving to death because you've sat down today and eaten a good meal 
and had your fill and yet you've got no concern for those who are going to hell when you by God's grace and God's grace alone are going to heaven there's something terribly wrong isn't there you have been shown incomprehensibly amazingly total undeserved grace You've deserved God's wrath. You've deserved an eternity under his punishment and instead God has welcomed you as his child and he's promised you heaven. Jesus Christ is preparing heaven for you. You're never going to know what it is to stand under God's judgment. You'll never know what it is to, to, to stand before God and have God say, but I hold this against you despite the fact that there's a mountain of things he could bring against you. You're never going to have that experience. And it's all of his grace. You you were born into a land that had the gospel. You you were born with the intellect to grasp it and understand it. You, You were brought somewhere whereby you heard the gospel. God then gave you the heart you needed to repent of your sin, to realise that you were a sinner and to understand what that meant and to be horrified by it. You were given the faith you needed to put your trust and your hope in Christ. You were brought to the cross by his irresistible grace and he saved you. And he then came to indwell you by his spirit. He's brought you into his family. He's given you the fellowship of saints. He's put heaven before you. He's forgiven your sin. He's done everything for you. And you live amongst a nation that doesn't know Christ. You live in a world that doesn't know Christ. And my friend, if you haven't got a concern for their souls, there is something terribly, terribly wrong with your own. You don't deserve heaven any more than the worst sinner you know. That's biblical reality, isn't it? You think of the worst person as we perceive it who you know in this world any point in history. You don't deserve heaven any more than that person. You don't deserve God's forgiveness any more than that person. You don't deserve to be exempt from hell any more than that person. It is 100% of his grace. So how can you possibly take all that and say, thank you God, I don't care about anyone who hasn't got it. It doesn't make sense, does it? We see first the reality of their position, those who are outside of Christ. This is their state tonight. It isn't that God waits, we've said it so many times, it's not that God says, okay, I'll give you to the end of your life to decide what you want to do about me and then and then we'll have some sort of judgment decision on it. This is where they stand now. They're outside of Christ. Let me just take you to two scriptures. The first is in Romans 5. We could have turned to many, many places. I just want to pick a couple. Romans chapter 5. I just want to pick a few verses there. Look firstly at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, that is, while we are outside of Christ, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. That's, that's where people are outside of Christ. That's reality check. In God's sight, they're sinners. You know, we can look at them and we can say that's a good person. And in one sense, we, we, we put the good in quotes as a Christian, I hope, but there is a sense in which we can look at someone and say they do good things. 
they're a good mother, they're a good father, they're a good neighbour, they're a law-abiding person. They could certainly be a lot worse than they are. But in God's sight, in God's judgment, they are a sinner. That's their status before God. Look at verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. That's what they are. Yes, they've been created in the image of God, but they are ungodly. That image has been marred. That's been damaged by the fall and it's damaged even further by their life. And as God views them, they are not for God, they're against God. They are alienated from God, they're ungodly. There's no mirror of God in them. It's not, you know, sort of new age philosophy that we find God in us and, and you know, what we've got to look for is the good in people. God says that they're sinners, they're ungodly. Look at verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, that's biblical reality, until and unless you come to Jesus Christ, you're a sinner, you're ungodly and you're God's enemy. Not by God's choosing, by your deliberate action. You have alienated yourself from God. You have put yourself in a position where you're diametrically opposed to God. By your sin, you have made yourself an enemy of God. Turn to Ephesians 2. Verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Spiritually they're dead. Physically they're alive. Physically they might be amongst the most physically alive people on earth. They can be full of energy, full of strength. They can be breaking world records. Spiritually they're dead. Spiritually they have no concept of what life and death is about. They have no concept of who Jesus Christ is. They're in no relationship with him. They're dead in their sin. Look at verse 5. He says it again. Dead in transgressions. It's very hard to wake a dead person up, isn't it? It's very hard to get a dead person to understand what's wrong with them. They're dead. That's the work of, of the Spirit of God to wake them up. It's our, God to, it's our job to, to be the voice through which God works to do that. They're dead. Look at verse 3. Like the rest we were by nature, objects of wrath. Whose wrath do you think that is? God's wrath. They're under the wrath of Almighty God. Do you understand that? That is, so God has got this massive great mountain of holy righteous judgment to pour out on them. And they're walking around on this planet with no concept that it's there. It's hanging over their heads. You know, it says when Jesus Christ returns, they'll cry on the mountains to fall on them and bury them. For, for, for so horrific will be the realisation that, that Christ is coming in judgement on them. That's, that's the horror of it. Suddenly in that moment they realise they're wrong and suddenly in that moment they see that this is reality, I'm now going to be judged for my sin. How can I stand before a holy God? They can't. And the wrath of God is, is waiting to be poured out on them. They're under his wrath. 
Verse 12, what does he say there? Separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. What a state to be in. I mean, if we value anything that's ours in Christ, if you woke up this morning, praise in the Lord for the fact that he saved you. If it thrilled your heart that you could speak to him in prayer and he would hear you and answer you. If you woke up thankful that you've got the Spirit of God indwelling you so that you can understand Scripture and you can discern what is right and you can please God. If you woke up thrilled to know that heaven is your home and you're going there, they've got none of that. They haven't got a clue what you'd be talking about if you told them, by and large. It's an totally alien to their whole experience to date. They are separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's biblical reality. And did you notice in both those places there were no exceptions? No exclusions. He didn't say most are like that. He didn't say some are like that. He didn't say the Gentiles are like that. He didn't say those that have heard the gospel five times and rejected it are like that. He said we all were like that. That's where every human being is until and unless the gospel is brought to them and they bow the knee before Christ, repent their sin and put their trust and their eternal hope in him. That's where they are. That's what we need to see first, isn't it? And by God's grace, that's what we need to show them. Second thing I want us to see is this, the horror of their destination. You know, many sectors of the church today, hell is not mentioned, is it? At least that's the case in Britain. I I guess it's probably the same in the States and in many parts of the world. It's not politically correct to talk about hell praise the Lord Jesus had a different objective and a different plan when he came to earth he talked a lot about hell he spoke more about hell than he did about heaven because it's reality it's where people are going we don't talk to them about hell because we want to stand in judgement over them we don't talk to them about hell because we're going somewhere different and we want to boast about it we talk to them about hell because we're concerned for them and we love them And we don't want them to go there. And they don't know what it is they're going to and if they do, they don't care. We speak out of love. We speak out of concern. We speak because we must, don't we? Friend, if you're a Christian and you haven't thought much about hell or it's a long time since you have, can I recommend to you, and if you want to borrow it, I've got a copy, uh, John Blanchard's book, Whatever Happened to Hell? It's just a book he's written really on looking at how has the church neglected the doctrine of hell. It's a a thick book. He looks at it in a lot of detail. Rightly so. You know, we need to be telling people about hell. Rico Tice said, doesn't he? Christianity Explored. You know, I've heard him say it in preaching. If you really love someone, the most loving thing you can do is tell them about hell. Because it's where they're going. You know, our job isn't to make their trip to hell more comfortable. Our job is to try to help them to see the reality of hell so that they'll do anything and everything to avoid going there. 
of all the places we could turn to to read about hell and there are many and many in the ministry of Jesus I want to turn you to Mark chapter 9 to Jesus' own words and uh, towards the end of that chapter in fact verse 43 remember this is Jesus speaking Mark 9 verse 43 this is what he says if your hand causes you to sin cut it off sounds amazingly drastic doesn't it if your hand causes you to sin chop it off who would think of doing that of course in some Muslim countries if you steal that's exactly what they will do chop your hand off but Jesus isn't saying get someone else to chop it off he's saying if your hand is the thing that causes you to sin cut it off why? It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Just you won't find many passages in scripture where someone talks more passionately, more black and white, more in your face about the reality of hell there and that is Jesus. Who so many in this world will talk a gentle Jesus, meek and mild and, and if you try telling them about heaven and hell they'll say, oh I don't want to hear that. I, you know, t- Tell me some nice stories about Jesus instead. Jesus is saying, wake up! Reality is that hell is so horrific that if you could avoid going there by chopping your hand off, do it. If you could avoid going there by chopping your feet off, do it. If you could avoid there by plucking your eyes out, pluck your eyes out. Do whatever you could do to avoid getting there. The reality is we can't do anything because sin isn't just in our hands and our feet and our eyes, it's in our hearts. It's in our mind and you can't cut your mind out. You can't cut your heart out. can throw yourself on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus and Jesus is trying to wake them up to the reality there of of, of the horror that awaits them their position now is terrible and their future is indescribably horrific and they don't even know that it's awaiting them that's the truth isn't it You ask most people what's going to happen to them when they die, they've got no idea at all. It'll be full of things like, I hope, or I'm not sure, or maybe, or, you know. They don't know where they're going. And if they are confident where they're going, they're probably wrong. And if they say, well, I'm probably going to go to hell, they've got no idea what hell's like, or they wouldn't be saying that. The horror of their destination the third thing I want us to see is this the uniqueness of Jesus Christ to save them Romans 5, 6 you see at just the right time when we were still powerless Christ died for the ungodly see outside of Christ a person is powerless they can't do anything to save themselves that's the first thing people need to understand isn't it when they realise that there's something wrong in their life they can't do anything about it It's no good saying, well, I live a better life. It's no good saying, well, I turn over a new leaf. 
or, or I'll, I'll stop doing that if that's sinful. It's too late. They're sinners and because they're sinners in their sin they are powerless to do anything. Isaiah 64, 6 All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shriveled up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. You see that even those things that we take our greatest pride in our greatest human achievements, endeavours until you come to Christ God says they're just like filthy rags to me. You know, against my pure standards there's no spiritual merit in them. Yes, they're good in the sense that they are morally right. Yes, they're good in the sense that they might not be causing you to, to commit another sin but, it, but in the sense of pleasing me in the sense of somehow meriting heaven in the sense of somehow putting yourself right with me they have no spiritual merit because they're coming from a heart that's wrong they're not coming from a desire to please me and glorify me otherwise you wouldn't be doing them for that purpose they're coming from a heart that says I want to do these because somehow I get the glory in it I feel better for having done it They can't save themselves because they're powerless. And those verses we just looked at in Acts 4. Can I just draw your attention to verse 8 to 12? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He that is speaking of Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. This is it, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. My friend, you see this. There is no way, no possible way, except through the Lord Jesus Christ, that anyone can be saved. We live in a pluralistic society, so I'm constantly being told, in Britain today. We're surrounded by people who are advocating you can get to God through this person or that person, through this way or that way. In the schools it's no longer being taught that Jesus Christ is the only way. You're being faced with the choice of religions. Take your pick or mix your own. And in light of all of that, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's the most politically incorrect statement that's ever been said on this planet, I imagine. And it's said by God himself. I am the only way, says Jesus. And people don't know that. And they don't want to know it. They want to believe that they can come to God other ways. They want to believe that they're not powerless, that they can somehow earn his favour. That somehow by living a, quote, good life, by being a good mother, a good parent, a good neighbour, by paying their taxes, by giving to the poor, that somehow they can get to heaven. Or if not that, they want to believe that they can go through Buddha or through Muhammad or through someone else other than bow the knee to Jesus. 
and he didn't come into the world to condemn those other ways, those other ways are already condemned. He came into the world to become the only way. He didn't come to say, I'm going to do away with those, he came to say, those don't work. I have come to die for sin, I have come to pay the penalty, I have come to bear the wrath of a holy God in order that sinners might be set free. So it doesn't matter if you're talking about the most horrific mass murderer or the most generous and loving father. It doesn't matter if you're talking to some philanthropic uh, multi-millionaire or a pauper It doesn't matter if you're talking to an Eskimo or a New York businessman, a devout Muslim or an atheist. It doesn't matter who you're talking to. Jesus is the only one you can present to them. For there is no other way they can be saved. Their need is the same. My friend, are you concerned for the saving of souls? How can someone be a Christian and say, I'm so glad that I'm saved and I don't care if no one else is? It is just totally nonsensical, isn't it? In fact, it's, can I say, I think it's blasphemous. How can you say that? How can you in one breath say, thank you God for what you've done for me and I don't care if no one else has it. Or thank you God for what you've done for me and I hope someone else tells someone else about it because I'm not going to be bothered. (coughs) It makes no sense at all. The second reason I wanted to look at tonight briefly and the third one And the last one is this, the return of Jesus Christ. Do you want to see Jesus Christ return? Okay, let's not make that a a rhetorical question. Do you want to see Jesus Christ return? You know, is that your greatest desire? I mean, did you wake up this morning with that in your thoughts that maybe today Jesus will come back? Wouldn't it be wonderful if before we went home from this service tonight the Lord Jesus Christ returned in glory and all of this was over and a new heaven and new earth was brought in wherein dwells righteousness and we didn't have to go back to work tomorrow and we didn't have to worry about fighting against sin again tomorrow and we didn't have to come asking God's forgiveness again tomorrow. If all of that was once and forever behind us wouldn't that be amazing? Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, says Paul, and not only to me but also to all who long for his appearing. Does that describe you? If you're a Christian, I hope it does. We're supposed to be longing, longing for the appearing of Jesus. That's when all that we've lived for as Christians comes into fruition, isn't it? That's what it's all about the return of Jesus Christ in glory. You know, the, the early church longed for his appearance, didn't they? You've got, you got that Chaldee word, haven't you? Um, uh, Maranatha. You know, they didn't even bother to translate it. It was like, hallelujah and amen. They just left it in the original because, because everyone knew what it meant and they were saying it all the time. Lord, come. Oh, Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. That, that was their constant cry. The climax of scripture is the return of Jesus, isn't it? The very closing chapter, Revelation 22 verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words, the prophecy of this book. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. Verse 17, The spirit and the bride say, Come, 
and let the one who hears say, come. Verse 20, he who testifies these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. That's how scripture closes. You know when you get a book and you read the book, it it all leads up to that last page, doesn't it? And when you read a book, don't you sort of long to... uh, Okay, I can see some grins. There's some people here who do it, aren't there? You know, I just see how it all ends. Spoils the book, doesn't it? You know, but some, some do it. They can't wait to see that last page. They have to look before they get there to read how it's going to end. How does scripture close? With Jesus Christ saying, I'm coming. With the Spirit saying, come. With the church crying, come. And these are the very last words of scripture. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And that closes the canon of Scripture. Do you want Jesus Christ to return? Well, you know, I hear a lot of Christians talk about things like earthquakes and famines and uh, persecution and they say, oh, it's got to be very close because Jesus talks about those things and his return. Well, be sure what Jesus talks about there because he's actually very careful what he does say in Matthew 24 the question is asked there in verse 3 of Matthew 24 tell us when will all these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age and I believe in answering that Jesus talks about two events he talks about the fall of Jerusalem and he talks about the thing that foreshadows his return in glory and I believe without question he's answering the question of when he'll return in glory in those verses but what does he actually say verse 4 And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. In other words, this age of grace between Christ's death and resurrection, ascension into heaven and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, that's just going to be the norm, folks. There are going to be earthquakes, there are going to be famines, there are going to be wars and rumours of wars. Yes, they might be increasing in frequency, but they're just going to happen. And Jesus says, don't think as soon as you see that, that that means I'm coming back at this moment. That's not the key And then you get down to verse 14 and this is what he says and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So it seems to me if you're going to look for signs of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ the sign he would point you to is this the gospel has got to be preached throughout the world and then the end will come. The one thing we know about his return is that on that day the books will be sealed. No one else will be added to the books. And yet in heaven there will be the redeemed from every tribe and language and people and nation on earth. I don't know what that means. I don't know how small a people's group that goes down to in number. But I do believe it means that across this planet there will be men and women, boys and girls who will be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So the thing that must happen before Jesus Christ returns is that the gospel is preached. Preached everywhere. 
And every time you open your mouth and speak to someone about Jesus, you're involved in that ministry. You're working to the return of Jesus Christ, aren't you? It follows, doesn't it, logically? Every time you go to someone else and speak about Jesus, you're helping fulfil that requirement for Christ to return. And however you're involved with missionaries overseas, if you're praying for them, if you're financially supporting them, whatever you're doing, you're helping towards that end goal of the return of Jesus Christ. Go down a few verses further, verse 30 of Matthew 24. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That can't happen until all the elect are saved. And all the elect won't be saved until the gospel is preached to all the elect. And my friends, every time you stand up and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone else, you're working to the return of Jesus. And that's an awesome realisation, isn't it? You're doing your part towards preparing this world for his return. My friend, when you speak about Jesus, be it in your workplace, be it in your home, be it with your neighbours, be it in the shop when you're queuing up to get something, be it when you're socialising, whether you're at some activity, whether you're street preaching, whether you're door-to-door visitation, whatever it might be, every time you open your mouth and you speak forth about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're involved in that ministry that is going to continue until Jesus says, that's it. It's achieved what I purposed. Now I will return in all my glory. Oh, my friends, why are we going to speak about Jesus? First of all, for his glory's sake. So that he gets the glory. Because we're passionate about people's souls. People are going to hell. People we love are going there. People we don't know are going there. Our enemies are going there. It's not us just picking out the one or two we care about. We should be concerned about every soul. They're going to hell. And Jesus Christ isn't going to return until his gospel has been preached throughout this world. And we're on the stage right now. This is our moment to do our part to that end. We're going to sing Amazing Grace.